The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Speaker, I also want to ask you about former Vice President Joe Biden and about this allegation that is being made by one of his former Senate staffers. Um, Do you think that it is time for Vice President Biden to address this head on himself? Well, I I have great sympathy for any women who bring forth an allegation. I'm a big, strong supporter of the Me Too movement. I I think it's been a great, made a great contribution uh, to our country. And and I do um, uh, support Joe Biden. I'm satisfied uh, with how he has uh, responded. I know him. I was proud to endorse him the other day on Monday. Very proud to endorse him. Uh, And so I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Uh, I mean, he hasn't, to be clear, he hasn't addressed it. His campaign has addressed it, but he has not directly addressed it. Should he directly, publicly address it? You know, it's a a matter that he has to deal with. But I am impressed with the people who worked for him at the time saying they absolutely never heard one uh, uh, iota of information about this. Nobody ever brought forth a a claim or had anybody else tell them about such a claim. Uh, But again, we have um, an important election and one that is, I think, one of the most important ones that we've had. We say that every election, but I think this one is the most crucial. And I I supported him because he's a person of great values, integrity, authenticity, imagination, uh, and a connection uh, to the American people. He understands the kitchen table uh, issues of America's working families. His father lost his job when he was a boy. He knows what that feels like for a family, how they're going to pay their bills, their health bills, the education of their children, supporting seniors in their families and the rest. Uh, it's just a, he, he's the personification of hope and optimism for our country, and I was proud uh, to endorse him. And America needs a person like Joe Biden with his, again, his integrity and his vision for the future. That was Speaker Pelosi speaking on Thursday to CNN's Allison Camerata. This was the day before Joe Biden himself finally directly addressed the allegations being made against him by Tara Reid. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, May the 2nd, 2020, and on this first Saturday in May, I wanted to take a look back at this week for the Democratic Party. It's been, I would say, a very bad week for the Democratic Party, mainly for the establishment Democrats. And you just heard there Speaker Pelosi referencing 
why she supports Joe Biden and why she thinks he would be the person to take the country forward and talked about the allegations and really didn't say much about them. She just said that she supports Joe Biden and likes the way that he has handled things. Now, this was before Friday. This was on Thursday that audio um, was from. So that was Speaker Pelosi on Thursday on CNN with Alison Camerata. And that was earlier in the morning on that day. And what I, I find interesting about Speaker Pelosi is that that tone was in marked contrast to the kind of things that she was saying during a press conference that she did, I think the same day. And I just found this to be quite interesting. Here is what Speaker Pelosi said. I think this was literally after, a little while after, Alison Camerata had said what she had to say in terms of interviewing Speaker Pelosi. Just listen to this. I, I think you might find this, I think, to be of some interest. Congress. Thank you, Ms. Baird. Yes, ma'am. Well, yeah, as far as uh, Biden is a concern, how do uh, Democrats square with the idea that, that they're essentially a... They're, they're standing by Biden, but they're using a comparatively different standard with, uh, with the Kavanaugh when, when he demanded a, uh, a investigation on Justice Kavanaugh when a very similar uh, allegation came out on him. Uh, well, let, let me just say, I, I respect your question, and I don't need a, a lecture or a speech. Here's the thing. I have a complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son. And uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard and be listened to. There is also due process. And uh, the fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden, uh, we, there's been s statements from his campaign, or not his campaign, but his former employees who ran his offices and the rest, that there was never any record of this. There was never any record. And that uh, nobody ever came forward or nobody ever came forward to say something about it apart from the principal involved. I am so proud. The happiest day for me this week was to support Joe Biden for president of the United States. He's a person of great integrity, a great concern for the American people. He authored the Violence Against Women Act uh, when he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee uh, in the 90s. He has been an advocate for funding it all along since then. And I, uh, uh, I believe that uh, uh, he will be a great president of the United States. Uh, he is the personification of hope and optimism uh, and authenticity uh, for our country, a person of great values. Uh, so I want to remove all doubt in anyone's mind. I have great comfort level uh, with uh, the situation as I see it, uh, with all the respect in the world for any woman who comes forward, uh, with all the highest regard for Joe Biden. And that's what I have to say about that. Thank you. Excuse me. 
I'll be back with my concise reaction to Speaker Pelosi and more about the Democratic Party and how they fared this week. Welcome back. The Democratic Party overall this week had a very poor week, I think, here in the United States, as a number of things happened. Now, the Republican Party has a bad day every day. And, of course, Donald Trump has been a massive failure, to say the least. Now, 66,000 people in the United States have died from coronavirus because, principally because of Donald Trump not doing anything for at least three months before things started to get way out of control. Donald Trump knew about this virus back in November at the very, very minimum. So let's stipulate that from the very start, shall we? And I think that the number of people who have passed away so far in this country, the U.S., from this virus is probably double what we are being told because of people who are at home who died there who didn't want to go to get medical help because they knew that they would be saddled with this almighty bill because our healthcare system in this country is a joke and then there are people who are homeless who no doubt got this virus as well and died from it there are people, of course, in detention centers and, of course, along the border in concentration camps, in case you have forgotten America, kids and women and men who have no doubt died from this under ICE custody and have not been reported. Then you've got states like Florida who have not reported people who are non-residents or who are telling medical people in the state not to report these folks. If they're out-of-staters, if they're people who live in another state, check their driver's license first before you count them as a dead person from coronavirus in this state. And if their driver's license says they're from New York State or from Indiana or from California, they're not counted. I can guarantee you, Governor Ron DeSantis that those very same people from out of state contributed to your economy and you would be using the money that they spent for your economic reports every quarter. I guarantee you'd be doing that. So that is stipulated. The Republicans have a bad day every day. The Republican Party is in the hands of the corporate elites, in the hands of psychopaths and sociopaths, like the one in the White House who is a genocider. He's a genocidal maniac. That is stipulated. But this week also, in addition to that, in addition to that, the Democratic Party was working hard to rival Donald Trump 
not in the number of people that Donald Trump is responsible for killing, in my view, but the number of really poor rollouts and news that has involved Democratic Party officials, the elite themselves, the corporate class, the establishment Democrats. And I think that that audio, those contrasting bits of audio from Nancy Pelosi personify that. The Speaker of the House has been very, very weak lately. She has a re-election bid this coming November. She will be squaring off against a progressive here in San Francisco in her district. Shahid Batar is the progressive and he is looking to pull off what would be an upset. But it would not be surprising because a lot of people in San Francisco are frustrated with Nancy Pelosi. Not just now, but for a number of years. And I think what San Francisco has needed is a candidate who will come along. Who will be bold enough, who will be strong enough and passionate enough and fearless enough to have a movement and to bring that movement into the equation. We've seen that already here in San Francisco with Chaser Boudin last November when he won the election. After days of recounts and retotalings, he became San Francisco's district attorney and the first progressive to occupy that title in what was a major blow for establishment Democrats. But what we're seeing this week from the Democratic establishment is about as poor as it's been since the orchestrations and machinations that ended up driving Bernie Sanders out of the Democratic presidential race back in March when all of the Democratic presidential candidates of the past dropped their campaigns or formally endorsed Joe Biden or gave up the shop, basically, to do so. And instead of having this robust, energetic group continuing to go through primaries, and in all likelihood, some of them would have dropped out, we had this shutdown of everything. And it was just Bernie and it was Joe Biden and... After just one debate, nothing else happened. And then three and a half weeks later, bingo, Bernie drops out. Now, of course, there's a small matter, no mean to be flippant here, of the pandemic that has raged. But aren't we capable of doing more than one thing at a time? Aren't we capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time in the United States? Have Americans lost the ability to do that? The Democratic Party at the moment seems to have lost that ability. And this week was a terrible week. Speaker Pelosi was coming off of articles in the Washington Post from the previous week talking about how ineffective her leadership was, how ineffective other senior Democrats were in the wake of this pandemic, in the wake of the legislation that was being contested in the House and in the Senate, how weak the House Democratic leadership had been. 
And when it came to negotiating with House Republicans, most of the House Democrats, who, of course, were all in the majority, caved. How could you cave to a group who you have more members than? How can you cave to the minority group? And I'm not talking about minority as in ethnicities. I'm talking because I hate that term. I'm talking about a group of people in Congress who have less power than you do numerically. Yet you behaved as if the Republican Party had more power than you. And your philosophy was, well, something's better than nothing. Let's just get this done, even though it doesn't really help most people. Let's just get a deal done for the sake of getting it done. And that was a negotiation position that worked for the Republicans. They got everything they wanted in the previous week. Washington Post ran an article about that, and I read it to you in previous episodes of this podcast. And I was saying the article quoted people like Jason Crow and numerous other people. Jason Crow is a Democrat. He was one of the House impeachment managers. And I was telling you about how much discontent he had, how frustrated he was. He wasn't able to have meetings. Pelosi had in the previous week backed off of virtual voting for the House because Republicans decided to bark at her. And she said, oh, okay. And then she went back and decided not to pursue virtual voting. No teeth, no leadership. And it's been like this now for several weeks since Trump was acquitted in that sham trial. Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, has been fairly invisible and very ineffective. Very ineffective, as quiet as it's been kept. Both of these bills that have gone through Stimulus, I think, stimulus two or three and stimulus two and three or stimulus three and four. I've, I've lost track. Neither of these bills effectively give relief to the American public overall. The one big victory that the House Democrats did get was the unemployment insurance, getting people extra an extra six hundred dollars for that. But the problem is, is that. It's a case of infrastructure and implementation in each state as to how that gets done. And pretty much every state has had a lot of problems with implementing the unemployment extra payments. There are some people in some states who do get it. There are some people in other states who don't. There are some people in some states who get far less than they were supposed to get. There are some people in some states who are eligible but can't get through the websites. There are some people in still other states who, because they have a side gig or had a gig economy effect or whatever it was, they had a side job as a musician or something like that, and they may have had one gig where they made a ton of money. And because of the numbers and limits and particular prescriptions of the payments in those particular states, because of that one, say, $10,000 payday that they got once in, say, a, a quarter, they now aren't eligible for a thing. So there's infrastructure problems, and I've talked about infrastructure a lot. But my point is, is that 
the Democratic Party right now has been very weak. When Trump has been doing all of these lying campaign rallies, where he lies, where he tells people to inject bleach into them, to inject disinfectant, there was not a strong enough pushback by this Democratic Party. And I'm really concerned about, again, how the Democratic Party has been going the last few days and weeks, this week in particular. You had Democrats this week, some of the heavy hitters supporting Joe Biden this week, endorsing him. And what a poor week it was for Joe Biden. He was very much on low on the radar with these allegations that Tara Reid has made. And it took him a whole month plus before he finally, finally responded to them. And my question for Joe Biden is, if you didn't do the things that Tara Reid said you did, why did it take you over a month to come out publicly and say, no, I didn't do this. I'm sorry, these things didn't happen. I did not ever do this to anybody. And I never have and I never will. Why didn't you come out when this happened in these other outlets that aren't mainstream, why didn't you come out then? You were fully aware, and your campaign was, that Tara Reid was making these allegations. You had, uh, I guess her name, I keep getting her name wrong, Kate Bedingfield, or whatever her name is, and I apologize to her if I got her name wrong. I apologize for getting her name wrong. Um, should that have happened? She puts out a statement about a month ago, these should be litigated through an independent press. That's a very strange statement to make. And I just think that the whole time what you've had happen here is Joe Biden's group coordinating with the corporate news media. I mean, why would anybody think that that is a conspiracy theory? Why would anybody think that that is a conspiracy theory, especially when Joe Biden's campaign called up the New York Times just a few weeks ago when they did an article on Tara Reid and Joe Biden and the allegations that Tara Reid has put forth. And Biden's campaign people said, hey, look, you need to strike this sentence, this portion of the sentence out of your article. And the New York Times literally said, OK. And they did. They actually struck a portion of text from the original article. And they actually put it on Twitter, the part that they struck out. It's incredible. And this was an article that didn't even say that Joe Biden was guilty. They just said that based on their investigation, they found not that Tara Reid was not credible. They didn't say that she wasn't credible. They just said that the claims were inconclusive, meaning that some people on one side said, yes, they could corroborate that she told the story, did Tara Reid? And then people on the Biden side said, no, we never got any complaint. There was never any word of one. And if there was, we would have heard about it. This has all been orchestrated. That's why Joe Biden was quiet for over a month. You had Democratic officials this week saying, speaking of a bad week for the party, you had Democratic officials all week long saying he's got to address these things. He's got to address them. 
You had a top advisor from the Buttigieg campaign say that. You had former DNC chair Donna Brazil say that. And in the midst of all of that, during this very week, Hillary Clinton goes out and endorses Joe Biden. And quite frankly, I thought it was a cringe-worthy event that they did together. At least the way they interacted in that event, it looked awkward, it looked stiff. There was a lack of enthusiasm. This is what happens when you have establishment Democrats leading things. Because there is such a huge disconnect between the establishment Democrats and the average voter under 50. Quite frankly, it's a generation gap too. And at the risk of being ageist, most of the people who are at the heart of the Democratic establishment and the leadership are people over 65. Let's have it absolutely right. Those people that I've mentioned so far today in the Democratic Party are all over 65 years old. It's not a crime to be over 65. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, is that there is a huge generational gap as well. And a lot of people look at Speaker Pelosi, at Hillary Clinton, at Joe Biden, and others of that ilk as being far removed from where they are, out of touch from where they are. And they don't convey a passion or an urgency except to keep things the very same and to stay in power. I've said this for a long time. I've always felt this for a long time that the DNC and the folks at the top of the leadership in it and around the party are all about maintaining power and maintaining their piece of the corporate stranglehold on that party, which has existed now for almost 35, 40 years. This is really what the truth is, which is why you keep getting these milquetoast Democrats. And this year, I think Joe Biden will prevail. I will vote for him. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. I have said that many times. I think if you poll most people on the planet and they had to pick between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, I dare say most of them, most of them around the world would pick Bernie Sanders. But of course, the world does not get to vote in our elections unless you are Vladimir Putin in Russia. But at the same time as you had Donna Brazil and an official in Pete Buttigieg's campaign, top official saying, you know, Joe Biden really should be addressing this. You had people like Stacey Abrams and Kirsten Gillibrand saying, oh, no, nothing to see here. Joe Biden didn't do anything wrong. I believe him. I just don't think that Tara Reid is credible. But I believe Joe Biden. This is Stacey Abrams, who has made no bones about it. She is begging. Well, I think that's a little bit cruel. She is making it very clear. She wants the vice presidential spot. And I have lobbied for her to get it as well. I hope she does get it. I just think that in this particular instance, she sunk to a very, very, very low place. 
truly in the sunken place this week was Stacey Abrams. And you could see when she spoke to Don Lemon that she looked very uncomfortable backing Joe Biden on these claims. I have nothing against her backing Joe Biden. I have nothing against her saying Joe Biden is the person I uh, am standing behind. I endorse him. That's one thing. But it's quite another when you're standing there as a woman blindly supporting him on allegations that are very credible. And everybody knows why you're doing it. You know why you're doing it. It's about power. It's about access. It's about personal political ambition. And that was laid bare this week. It certainly was laid bare by Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator out of New York. The foremost domestic violence survivor advocate in the Senate is Kirsten Gillibrand. She, of course, was a former presidential candidate. She must know that Tara Reid's story and her allegations at the very least should be looked at and investigated. In fact, the LA Times has urged that this week in an editorial. Washington Post might have as well. But Kirsten Gillibrand, that didn't stop her. Oh, I support Joe Biden. And this is the same Kirsten Gillibrand who, when it was Brett Kavanaugh, the Republican, who was up for the Supreme Court seat. Oh, you know, I believe Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh really shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. And this is the same Kirsten Gillibrand who, when it was Democratic Senator Al Franken back in 2017, it was Al Franken should step down immediately. Al Franken should resign his seat. The allegations being made are of, of such a nature that I think he should step down. And I believe that when you have seven women and five women and three women coming out and making these allegations, I think that Franken's got to step down. He must step down. And that's just what our Franken did. Within a few weeks, he was out of the Senate. Donald Trump is still in the White House, however. And as I've always said, it doesn't matter how many allegations. It, it doesn't matter if it's 50 or 100 or 1. It matters that there is an allegation. And it matters that that survivor must be heard. It doesn't matter if Tara Reid has written about Russia, whether she likes Russia, whether she likes Putin or not. That's got nothing to do with these allegations that she's bringing. Putin was not in the Senate office building when what Tara Reid alleges occurred. So why on earth are people bringing up Russia? I mean, are you really trying to say that this is 
the effort from the 2016 again. So now they, I know Russia's trying to do things, but they're trying to do things in all kinds of areas. What are the Democrats doing to counteract that? What are the Republicans doing to counteract that? I mean, have we become that lazy in this country that we don't want to look at allegations? Oh, because it's an election year, we shouldn't look at them? Oh, this is a setup? Wasn't it not a setup when it was Hillary Clinton? Why are we running away from this? Why is the Democratic Party running full bore for Joe Biden when Joe Biden, when he finally addressed these allegations from Tara Reid yesterday, did not make a convincing case of it? He was going to always be in an impossible position. Because all he can say is, I didn't do it. But then, why didn't he say this a month ago? More than a month ago. Why did he have to hide behind a statement? I thought that that was bad form. And it only looks worse for Joe Biden now. And it hurts Tara Reid as well. Because this ordeal continues. This is an ordeal that Tara Reid will live with for the rest of her life. And this week you had Democrats slobbering all over Joe Biden. It was really bad this week for the Democrats. And I've got one more thing to say about all of that. I respect your question and I don't need a a lecture or a speech. Here's the thing. I have complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son. And uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard. Oh, goodness gracious me, Speaker. Come on. I have four daughters and one son. You know, you sound like a lot of these men who say, well, my daughter, because I, I care about this issue because I've got a daughter as if having a daughter is a prerequisite for caring about survivors and about ending violence against women. Why is there this prerequisite? Oh, well, I've got a daughter or I've got... That's just pathetic. That is not the way I think that we should be messaging this. Especially people in power should not be messaging this by saying, well, I have a daughter. So that gives me greater moral authority to talk about all of this. That means that I'm invested. Well, people who don't have children, who don't have daughters are invested in this too if they care about the issue. There is no special emblem that says you have a greater investment in this because you have a daughter. I think every one of us has to have and must have a greater investment in caring about ending violence against women, violence against girls. I mean, let's start pushing for laws that do that. What a... What a crap show. I'll just say it like that. I don't want to curse. What a, I mean, it really merits a curse, though. It's been a horrible week for the Democrats. Horrible week. That disarray. And you know what? Here's the other thing that was, a, was one of the really bad things this week that happened. That was the New York State Board of Elections, Democratically Controlled Board of Elections, Canceling the Democratic primary for New York State. 
I would argue that this was the worst thing that happened in the Democratic Party this week. I really would argue that. The rationale for closing these, and this is from the Associated Press, Marina Villeneuve and Jennifer Peltz, this week in the Associated Press. And the New York Board of Elections cancelled its Democratic primary for 2020 because of the coronavirus pandemic, infuriating former candidate Bernie Sanders' campaign and his supporters. They called Monday's decision a strike against democracy. New York will still hold its congressional and state-level primaries on June 23rd. Commissioner Andrew Spano said he worried about potentially forcing voters and poll workers to choose between their democratic duty and their health. While there will still be other officers on the ballot, Spano reasoned it made sense to give voters an opportunity to choose in contested races, but not to, quote, have anyone on the ballot just for the purposes of issues at a convention, end quote. This is disgraceful. Andrew Spano, that is your rationale? That's your reasoning? Just for the purposes of issues at a convention? That is everything. That is for the country. The issues at the convention, should it happen in mid-August, then it's scheduled to, are everything. This is about shaping the Democratic Party platform. This is about cultivating what people want. It's unbelievable. And Andrew Spano, again, is up in his 80s. This is someone, again, who is out of touch, disconnected, one of the elite, one of the hierarchies, hierarchy people in the Democratic Party in New York. This is someone who isn't a progressive. He has got no idea about what's going on on the ground because his feet are off the ground. He is part of the clubhouse machinery. Issues at a convention? These issues are everything. The Sanders campaign is advocating for all those things that are more relevant than ever before and relevant right now because of this coronavirus pandemic. So I think that it's a little rich from Andrew Spano to talk about, well, we should give the people who have contested races an opportunity to have people vote for them. But people on the ballot, just because they're on there for issues at a convention, eh, we'll just dismiss you. You don't count. And the Democratic Party has been telling voters that for a long time, quite frankly, especially voters they don't agree with specifically voters they don't agree with. For many years now, the democratic machinery has been about throwing its voters off the voting rolls, specifically the voters that are not likely to agree with them. And in this way, they are quite like the Republican Party. As quiet as it's kept, we love to romanticize the idea that the Republicans are the party of vote suppression, vote stealing, 
And they are. They are the party of that. They're doing it right now as I speak. They are purging millions of voters across the country, which is why you must register to vote. And I'm going to be doing another episode soon on that. And make sure that you vote Democratic. It is also important to realize that the Democratic machinery has also done this from time to time, including in the 1960 presidential election to help John F. Kennedy in the state of Illinois and to tip him over the top and get him past Nixon. That is not a secret. It's well known. It's well known. But I think it's really hideous of the state Democratic Party in New York to cancel the presidential primary and say, oh, it's due to the virus. Yet they're still having local primaries, local elections. So isn't that due to the virus? Did the virus somehow maneuver itself around the local races? But just completely plagued the Democratic presidential primary. The virus somehow made a left turn and said, nope, we don't want to go over there and infect those local races, those contested races. We're going to just swarm all over that Democratic presidential primary between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. The Democratic Party in the state of New York copped out. And this was an act of voter theft, voter stealing. Bernie was still on the ballot. Bernie had dropped out. The very least that you should have done, and this is still being contested, by the way, by progressives. So we may not hear the last of this. I don't think we have. The very least you could have done, Andrew Spano, is to leave that race intact and allow for the democratic process to play itself out. Joe Biden was going to get New York anyway. He was going to win upstate New York. He was going to win most of the areas outside of New York City. We all know that. Bernie Sanders would have won New York City. And I think that's what you guys were worried about. And because Bernie is from New York City, he's from Brooklyn originally. You were worried that he would get a load of delegates out of those districts because it's proportionately represented. And that's how it's determined delegate wise. So you're concerned that Bernie Sanders was going to win a whole load of delegates and make this thing a lot closer and give progressives when it came to the convention, these so-called convention issues that you talk about. Spano, you are worried and others of you in the establishment wing of the Democratic Party were worried that voters perhaps might turn out for Bernie, even though his name, uh, even though he has dropped out of the race, which he did last month. The Democratic Party throws a lot of contempt to its voters, and I have suspicions that they engaged in vote stealing in numerous primaries this year in the Democratic primary. I think they did it here in California. 
I think they did it in Minnesota. I think they did it in Maine. I think they did it in Massachusetts. I think they did it in Texas. I think they did it in Washington State. It makes no sense for Bernie Sanders to win New Hampshire and then get beaten soundly in Maine and beaten sizably in Massachusetts. That's a complete outlier. Either it's a complete outlier or it's a downright theft. No one said anything about that. No one says anything anymore about the Iowa State Democratic Party chair who quit after the whole debacle around the Iowa caucus with that app company that Pete Buttigieg's campaign a few months before paid money to, $40,000 plus to. And you've not heard a single thing about that in the news anymore. In fact, it never really made CNN or any of these other TV outlets magical, mysterious disappearance of that story. The guy from the Iowa State Democratic Party, he just quit. And that was the end of that. Lawsuits are still going on about that. You're not hearing about that in the press. Why are Democratic leaders, why is the Democratic machinery doing this to Democratic voters? It is an awfully poor strategy. You are trying to solidify the status quo, lay waste to lots of voters under the age of 50, who many of whom may be progressives, in, sure, in, in furtherance of shoring up your control and power over the party. And you would rather lose to Donald Trump again if it meant keeping your power. The Democrats keep doing this and they don't learn. Look, I think Joe Biden will win this November. I've got every confidence in that he'll win outright. I will vote for him. I just think that the Democratic Party is doing a really bad job so far in their responses to Trump, who has been lying hours and hours a day every day, in their responses about galvanizing people in the base, in the responses to Joe Biden and how he's been handling the allegations Tara Reid has made, in the negotiations of these bills that are supposed to help the American public, in some of these governors like California Governor Gavin Newsom, who has been very weak lately in his leadership. Oh, I'm going to close all the beaches. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to close beaches in Orange County. Then you have these mass protests in Orange County in Huntington Beach. And Newport Beach, they all swarmed the beaches. And now in the LA Times, Governor Newsom's considering opening up again very soon. Maybe I'm going to open everything really soon to appease a bunch of thugs. No leadership from Gavin Newsom. There's been a lot of discontent with him. And LA Times had another story earlier in the week that said, oh, well, you know, the voters still trust him, but, you know, they've got some reservations. Yeah, I, I bet they've got reservations about him. I have, and I voted for him. Now back to New York for one second. Welcome back. An extraordinary story that you may never have heard of from a news website called cityandstateny.com. City and State New York, web address cityandstate, 
www.nyhealthny.com. This is from November 6, 2018. This is right around the time of the midterms this article came out. It's written by Stacy Asip Nightshall, and her last name is spelled A-S-I-P hyphen K-N-E-I-T-S as in Sam C-H-E-L. Stacy Asip Nightshell. That may be a man. I'm not sure it could be a man or a woman. The headline, NYC purged 200,000 voters in 2016. It wasn't a mistake. Here's how so many New Yorkers were blocked from voting and why it could happen again. In anticipation of voting, in the April 19, 2016 presidential primary in New York, Kathleen Meganozzi checked her registration online. The Brooklyn resident, a registered Democrat since 2008, learned three weeks before the election that she had been struck from the rolls. Another Democrat from Brooklyn, Casey James Diskin, who first joined the party in 2012, discovered five days before the primary that he was not registered at all. In Manhattan, Michael Hubbard, a Democrat since 2015, checked his status online 17 days before planning to vote, only to find that he too was no longer registered. Meanwhile, in Queens, Benjamin Leo Gersh, who also had been a registered Democrat since 2015, checked on his voter status and saw two weeks before the primary that he too had been purged. Then New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman would eventually reveal that there were among 200,000 New York City voters who had been illegally wiped off the rolls and prevented from voting in the presidential primary. But by January of 2017, when Schneiderman announced that he would intervene in a federal lawsuit against the New York City Board of Elections, along with the Justice Department, the, the news fell on deaf ears. The announcement had come just seven days after Donald Trump's inauguration. Although it was the first time the total number of purged voters had been disclosed, the media was consumed with a different statistic, the crowd size at Trump's inauguration. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The lack of media attention was in stark contrast to the recent barrage of headlines about a right-wing push to purge eligible voters from the rolls. Much of the media ignored New York's proven case of election fraud perhaps because it had been facilitated by Democrats and not by Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, a Republican with a national profile for championing stricter voter ID legislation. This was written in November, November 6, 2018. Since then, Chris Kobach ran for governor and lost. He's no longer the Secretary of State of Kansas, but his model called cross-check for purging votes persists in a number of states with these pushes for voter ID laws, these voter ID law states. This is an extraordinary, this article goes on and on and on. It's a long article written again by Stacey Asip Nightshall. The headline, NYC purged 200,000 voters in 2016. It wasn't a mistake. This is off the heels of what happened this week, where the New York Democrats in the New York Democratic Party leadership didn't even have to go to this length. They simply said, no, we're shutting you down. We're closing you down. 
You're not even going to get to vote at all because we're not even going to have a presidential primary. How's that? That is the mechanism upon which the New York Democrats are operating. And I dare say this has been replicated in a number of states over the years. As I have alluded to, I think that there's been a lot of chicanery in the Democratic Party when it comes to the way it treats its voters. And anybody who does some simple research on this will see that I am telling the truth here, will see that I am absolutely on point. There have been studies and research done on the exit polls and then the final numbers in these Democratic Party primaries this year. How they all favored Bernie Sanders in the exit polls and then at at the end of it, mysteriously, Joe Biden had this tremendous upshift in voting. Same thing in Los Angeles. Los Angeles County, which has historically been rife with voter stealing. Vote stealing. Stealing votes. Stealing voters. Stealing them off the rolls. Taking them off. Stealing votes. Historically happened down in Los Angeles County, where now you have people dying all over the place in Los Angeles County. You've got these fools in the county next door protesting, no masks, no gloves. Oh, open everything up again. Yeah, right. That's not happening. Not anytime soon, unless, of course, Gavin Newsom, the governor of the state, chickens out and says, okay, I'll open. What could possibly go wrong with that scenario? But we've had this in Los Angeles County in 2016. Same thing happened. I remember calling the Secretary of State's office in Southern California. Well, actually, calling the Board of Elections down in Southern California, I guess it was, or whenever it was. I think it's Sacramento, the Board of Elections. That's where they're headquartered. That's the state capital. And I had a conversation of about 15 minutes with somebody. And I said, look, you know, there's, are you seeing issues? And she said, yes. In Los Angeles County, 200,000, 300,000 people. San Diego, same thing. People being saying that they can't vote. This is in 2016, during the primary. Hillary Clinton was running against Bernie Sanders. It was basically the two of them. And I think maybe uh, one other candidate who was not known at all. O'Malley had pretty much dropped out by then. And it was just Bernie and Hillary. And we saw the same things happening. The Democratic Party is doing some of these things as well. And they've had a bad week. And they are risking alienating some of the progressive movement. And I don't think that this was a good idea by the New York Democrats to do what they did. Really did not help their case. And has obviously understandably made a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters very upset. The Democratic Party has its own issues with democracy. The Democratic Party is behaving anything but democratically as they shut down New York's primary. You thought that what the Republicans did was bad in Wisconsin and it was a disgrace. Having Democrats in New York State say, well, the presidential primary is closed because of the virus, 
But you can vote with these local, these local elections, however, that are contested. You can have them. Go ahead. Makes what Andrew Spano said a complete lie. Either you cancel everything or you cancel nothing. Either you say to everybody, due to this pandemic, you just don't vote. Or you say to them, as Andrew Cuomo did, look, there's vote by mail. You're going to all get vote ballots in the mail. We'll see if that happens for June 23rd for New Yorkers. Or you just say, no, we're not even going to do vote by mail. We're going to cancel the law. And Andrew Spano absolutely looks like an ass because all he had to do was say, we will do this entire election by vote by mail, which is what Cuomo has done. This week, Cuomo said, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, New York State governor, said, we're going to do this all vote by mail. If you want to try to go to the precinct, you can, but we're going to do this vote by mail. Cuomo said when confronted with this thing about Bernie uh, and the primary being closed in New York and we're not going to about closing down the primary altogether. Cuomo said, well, it's not my decision. You have to talk to the board of elections about that in New York. And you know what that was about. Biden apparently had nothing to do with this himself. And I can't imagine that he would have given the fact that he and Bernie are in continuous negotiation. Their teams are continuously negotiating about delegates for Bernie and about how much, how many of the delegates Bernie will get or how many delegates, you know, they're, they're going to be doing all this kind of thing, negotiating about delegates. I sure hope that no other state closes down its primary and says you can't vote at all. It's very undemocratic. Why is New York doing this? Well, I think I know why. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. 